this enough? He says, yes, that's enough. And you go and you buy that field. Or maybe you're one of these who, if you've ever seen the PBS show Antiques Roadshow, I'll admit that I'm quite a nerd and I'm bringing up children who are nerds and we watch that show. But these experts that they have on the Antiques Roadshow, if you could imagine one of them yard selling, just going out on a normal early Saturday morning, he's looking for things that he knows are of value that he can get at a good price and then turn around and sell them. But all of a sudden, in one yard cell, stuck off back in the corner, he comes across a painting. It's a painting that he has some recollection of. The painter, he vaguely remembers the name. And as he looks at it a little bit more, he begins to see the perfection in the painting. He begins to see the value in the painting. He understands that this painting marked $50 in the yard sale is worth everything that he has. So he goes back to the house as quickly as he possibly can. He does the same thing and he cashes everything in. And he goes back to the home praying that that portrait has not been sold and it has not been. And he lays out everything he has to the owner of that picture, to that portrait. He says, I want to buy that. Having wanted to sell it for $50, of course the owner gladly hands it over. And out the expert walks with a priceless, perfect painting. A one-of-a-kind masterpiece. When we come to Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells two very similar stories. But the stories that Jesus tells, the stories that he tells, they're they're about the kingdom of God. They're about the value of the kingdom of God. And as much as the things that we're going to talk about this morning, the one main thing that we can't get past and can't get around, is that what these stories indicate for us is how valuable the kingdom of God is and what we should and will do to gain access to the kingdom of heaven. If you would stand with me as we turn to Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. It says this in the word of God, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You may be seated. The two stories that I opened with clearly are made-up stories. But what I wanted you to see is that the stories that Jesus is telling 
can roll right into our context and right into our times. And I want you to be able to understand what he is saying with something that might be a little bit more contemporary for you and for I. Because we can all imagine going out and preparing a greenfield for hunting season, can't we? We've all heard the stories of someone going to a yard sale and paying $5 for something and coming to find out that it is so valuable that it's worth everything that they have. But Jesus lays out these stories, and as he does, he does so in a particular place and in a particular time in history. But not only that, Matthew, as he lays out the story of the gospel, lays this out for us in a particular place in the gospel. And so, if you would, just to kind of set the stage for where we are, the disciples have been called, Jesus has been baptized, he has begun his public ministry, he has proclaimed the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5 through 7. The word of the God, the word of God is being taught and is being proclaimed. He's sending them out, he's called them to desert everything that they have. He's called them to give up every piece of value that they have in life. Their homes, their families, their jobs, their career, anything they have. He's called them to desert that and come and follow him. And they have. They've, they've done exactly that. As a matter of fact, just a couple of chapters previous to this, we see John's disciples coming and that question, because isn't that question always on the mind of the disciples who are following Jesus? Is it really worth what I have given up to follow God? I, I don't know about you, and maybe you're holier than I am, but there are moments in my life when the question is, is it really worth everything I've given up to follow God? Is it worth what I have surrendered to follow the Master? Is the kingdom of heaven worth everything you've called me to give up? John sent his disciples to basically ask that question in chapter 11. They come to Jesus and they said, Jesus, are you really the one are you the messiah are you the one who is the promised king he explains what's taking place and they go back to john who is in jail who is soon to be beheaded and they tell him what jesus has said and he understands that it is yes that it is that valuable that it is worth everything that he has asked them to give up but in making these calls to his disciples and to individuals to give everything up and to follow him we come to this chapter, in chapter 13, he really begins to lay out the kingdom of God in many parables and in many stories. And he's telling them how valuable it is, that it is worth. He's reminding them of all of these things. If you continue on, we see he's kind of, Matthew's kind of crouched this in the middle between the call of the disciples who were willing to sell everything and come follow him and the, the young, rich young ruler, the rich young man who was unwilling to sell everything and come follow Jesus. And actually, if we even go look, the disciples still, as we typically do, still have that question lingering on their tongues and in their minds. Because G Peter comes to Jesus and he says, we've given up everything for you. What will we gain in return? 
And so Jesus lays out for him the value of the kingdom of God. But right here, as the master teacher always does, he's preparing the hearts of his disciples for the things that are to come by laying out the value of the kingdom of God and making sure they understand that what they have surrendered and what they have given up is much less in value than the things that they have gained. They've gained the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And it is valuable. And as we come to these two parables, we see several things. <coughs> the first one is that the kingdom is able to be found. We see that the kingdom is able to be found. Now, I would pose to you that both of these stories, they really work in conjunction together. One is a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. He's not looking for it. He's just kind of going throughout his normal day-to-day business. We don't know exactly what he was doing in that field. It doesn't matter what he was doing in that field. We don't know why he believed it was ethical to cover up that field. That's not the point of the story. Jesus doesn't always use the most, most ethical people to make the points he's trying to make. So, we see that the kingdom can be found. One is going about his day-to-day thing. The other one, we really see, we think at first reading that he is searching for this pearl. He's searching for this thing that he finds. But on closer reading of the text, what we see is he is a merchant. He's not looking for one pearl that's worth everything he has. He's looking for pearls, plural, because he is a merchant so that he can continue in the business of being a merchant of pearls. He's looking to make a profit. So we see that the kingdom of God can be found. And we understand and we read that in Isaiah 65, that no one seeks God. Paul repeats the same thing in Romans chapter 3. No one seeks God. No one is righteous. No one is seeking. And so if we bring that into our context, if you can imagine walking out onto the street, stepping in front of someone, telling them who Jesus is, and them seeing the value of him and the kingdom of God and surrendering everything they have instantly to him. That's his first story. Or maybe it's, maybe it's more like this second story. You know, this second story reminds me of my father. He knew about the kingdom of God. He knew about a relationship with Jesus. He knew about church, the Bible, and all of those things. He really wasn't even looking for any of that. What he was doing is, you know, some woman in a laundromat had asked him to go to church. A little old lady doing her laundry came in and asked a 25-year-old Vietnam veteran who was pretty rough and pretty gruff if he would come to church. And being a polite young man in the South, he said, of course I would. And my mom had been on him, wanted him to come to church with her. Why don't you come and go to church with me? So he said, you know what? I'll go. I've told this lady that I'll go to church. I've told my wife that I'm going to go to church. And I'm not a liar. I'm an honorable man, so I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. And in doing so, he walked in the doors of a church one Sunday morning. He was seeking one thing, and he found another. He was seeking to keep his word and to do what was right. He was seeking to keep life going and keep life steady. And what he found that day was a pearl of great 
one that was greater than anything he had ever seen. Because when he walked in the door that day, what was opened up to him by the Spirit of God and the calling of God on his life is the clarity to see how valuable the kingdom of God really was. And it was worth everything that he had. And from that moment forward, he gave his life to it. Some of you are the same way. You may have been just going about your day-to-day business when someone walked in front of you and told you the story of the gospel and it made an impact on you. Or you may have been looking for something But let me tell you, we're not looking for what we find when we find the kingdom of God. We can talk about seeker-friendly. We can talk about seekers. They're not seeking what they really find when they find the kingdom of God. Because what they're seeking when they find the kingdom of God is something much less than that. Something of much less value than that. Seekers who are coming into the church, who are looking to find something, when they find the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, they find something that far surpasses anything they thought they could have found. So we see that the kingdom of God can be found, but not just that. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven brings great joy. Can you imagine finding something that is so valuable you know that everything you have and everything that you will ever gain in your life pales in comparison to the value of that. And that you have the opportunity To gain it? Do you think you would go sell your house and your car and your stocks, cash in your retirement, get everything out of sight? Do you think you would do that with a grumbling and a complaining spirit, with a heart that just really isn't that into it? Or do you think that when somebody bought that house and wrote you that check, there'd be a smile on your face? When you had to pay the the penalties for taking your retirement out early, you'd have a smile on your face when you put that check in the bank. Because there's joy there, because you know what you are about to gain is far greater than everything that you have, everything that you have had, and everything that you will have. And it brings joy into our life. Can you imagine this, this merchant as he sees this pearl, this perfect pearl laid out there and he has seen a number of pearls in his lifetime but all of a sudden he comes to this one and it is perfect it is great it is magnificent and he understands this is the real thing there's not going to be one greater than this you think he walked away with a grimace on his face Do you think he walked away sad about what he had seen? I bet in both cases they walked away trying to hide the excitement and the joy that has overwhelmed them. When we see the reality of the kingdom of God, it brings joy into our lives. People don't come to salvation and to Christ into entering the kingdom of heaven kicking and screaming. Because when they see the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for them and what he offers them, it brings a smile to their face. It overwhelms them with emotion. There is joyous tears in those moments. 
The tears we see people coming to faith cry are not sad tears of the life they're leaving behind. It's excitement and joy for the life that Christ has presented them with in the future. They're excited about it. It's, it's a happy time for them. But we can't miss when we look at this that the, the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything we will ever see. Because we can get caught up in these, in these parables and in these stories that Jesus uses. And we can question whether or not the man was ethical in covering up the treasure and then not telling anyone and going and buying the field so that he could gain the treasure. We could question whether or not the man who bought the pearl really paid a fair price for that pearl. But that's not the point. The point of the story is that the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than anything you will ever see, that you will ever hold, that you will ever come into contact with. kingdom of God is worth everything you have and then some. So when Jesus calls, when the Spirit of God moves in our lives and in our hearts, and He says, surrender all, it's worth it. It's worth it. The kingdom of heaven is worth everything that we have. And so, I guess now you're wondering, because every one of us has in our mind, well, what, what, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? We either have a picture in our, in our mind and we say, well, that's, that's heaven. That's, that's when I come to the end of life and I enter into the, to the presence of God <coughs> in eternity with him. That's the kingdom of heaven. And I would agree, that is the kingdom of heaven. But when we read these parables that Jesus is telling, when we look throughout the, the gospel of Matthew about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, and we read what Jesus tells us and what, what is written down for us in the word of God as it talks about this great thing that's worth everything that we have, what we see is that there is instantaneous gain in when we come to the kingdom of heaven. The man who bought the field didn't have to wait for his pleasure and his treasure. The man who brought, bought the pearl did not have to wait to gain access to the pearl. Once the price was paid, once they surrendered all, it came unto them. And they experienced the joy and the pleasure of being with those things, of owning those things. Once we experience the joy of understanding the kingdom of God and are willing to surrender everything to Him, we don't have to wait to start experiencing the pleasure and the joy that comes with knowing our Savior. It's instantaneous. It's not to be manipulated. It's not to be twisted. It's not to be thought of as something that we can control. But it's to be thought of as something that brings us joy. That brings us happiness. And that starts right now. I don't have to be a miserable Christian waiting on heaven. 
I can be a happy, joy-filled Christian even in the midst of persecution because that's where this comes. And these stories come in telling of the, the fact that persecution is going to come. The sword and not peace is to come. All of these things point toward the fact that they're going to have to experience joy and pleasure along with pain and much pain and much suffering and much persecution. But it's worth it. There's no amount of pain, there's no amount of agony, there's no amount of suffering, there's no amount of tragedy that can come into your life that can take away the joy of when we really understand the true kingdom of God and the value that it holds. It's a pleasure and a joy for right now. You don't have to wait. You don't have to wait to enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we see that the kingdom of heaven is this thing that's going to happen in the eschaton in the end, when Christ returns, we're going to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. And we long for the kingdom of God to come in its complete fullness. But right now, Jesus tells us that He has come and that the kingdom of God is at hand, that we live in the midst of the kingdom of God if we are believers. And so as we look at the kingdom, we have to understand that part of the kingdom of heaven is right here. So how does that work itself out in day-to-day living? Well, if we go back to Matthew chapter 5 and some of, other Jesus, some of the other teachings that Jesus gives us from the Sermon on the Mount and other places, we see that what he does in the Sermon on the Mount really is kind of lay out a, an ethic for the kingdom of heaven. He lays out what the kingdom of heaven should look like. Because when we go back to Matthew 5 through 7, we read the Sermon on the Mount, we look at those things and we say, wow, we can't do that. You know what? You can't. Agree completely. But that's that's the goal. That's where our hearts should be striving for. That's where our desire should be to live out the kingdom ethic as it is presented by Jesus himself. And so when we come to looking at a kingdom ethic and how that's worked out in our lives on a day-to-day basis, this, this gathering... This people, the church, is where the kingdom ethic, where the kingdom of heaven should be displayed and demonstrated to the rest of the world. This is what the world should look at and say, it's going to look like that. Because that's the way we should be treating each other. That's the way we should be living with each other. That's the way we should be honoring one another. That's the way that we should be serving him faithfully. It's in a way that presents to the onlooking world a picture of what the full kingdom of God will look like when it comes. We won't do it perfectly, but we should strive to do it to the best of the ability, not of my ability, but to the best of the ability that God gives me through His grace and His mercy to live with and to serve with and to interact with other people around me in the kingdom of God and in the church. So how does that look for us? Because, Aaron, we're talking about roll up your sleeves. We're talking about serving. Well, that's exactly it. When we see the value of the kingdom of God and we believe that the church is the way for us to work out and display to the onlooking world the kingdom of God and what it's going to look like in the end, it changes our perspective on what we're willing to do and how we're willing to serve and how we're willing to go and the things that we're willing to commit to. Because we begin to see that commitment takes cost. We begin to see that if 
if we truly are in the kingdom of God, it's not out of obligation, it's not out of duty that we serve, it's out of love for God that we serve one another so that the world might see what the kingdom of heaven really is, look, is supposed to look like and in doing so, cause them to long to be a part of that kingdom. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The world will know that you love me because of how you love one another. The way we interact, the way we deal with each other, the way that we love each other, the way that we serve each other, it impacts how the world sees the kingdom of God. You know, I do things for my wife and for my daughters that I don't do for all of you. I love you guys, I do. Over the last... 12 plus months, I've grown to love you more. But their values, the, the inner workings of our families, I don't serve them, I don't do for them out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of looking for profit or gain on myself. I, I serve them and I demonstrate my love for them simply because of that. Their value to me, the love I have for them, I serve them to demonstrate what it looks like to be a family that loves one another and that serves God. When we come into the church, it's the same thing. Why do you serve? I draw a salary from Iron City Baptist Church. But that's not why I serve. It's not why I'm here. Do you really think that I gave up and surrendered Everything I had. Moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Spent five and a half years in school. The hardest I've ever seen. And I'm not somebody who loves school. Then I gave up the profession that I was good at. That I had been trained in. You think I did that to... To make more money? Because I wanted the power and the prestige of standing behind the pulpit and preaching or teaching? Not even close. I did so because I see the value of the kingdom of God and the call that he placed on our lives. And it was worth everything we had to surrender it and move in the direction that he had called us. You think I spent 10 years outside the state of Alabama in Texas, the place I said when I was growing up that I would never live because I just wanted to? Because I longed to serve him. Because I saw the value of the kingdom of God and the direction that he was moving. That's what we're asking you to do when we ask you to roll up your sleeves. We're asking you to see the value in each other. We're asking you to see the value in the kingdom of God. We're asking you to see how you can love and serve one another in a way that brings honor and glory to God and points the lost to the kingdom of heaven. How can we do that better? How can you do that if you're not already doing that? Because you know when we look around at the church, and yes, we're going to talk about serving the church but there are some things that prevent us from serving in the church, aren't there? When I think about people who don't serve in the church, 
in most typical churches, one of the things that is abundantly clear is that past staff and past leadership in churches dramatically impacts the way people serve today. I can remember being in Seymour, Texas, and walking into a home, and the family telling me that they didn't come to our church and weren't willing to serve in a church because of what a pastor had done four pastors back. Not the last guy. This is a guy that hurt grandma, not me. It's a family grudge that carries on. What hinders us from serving, if it is the past that hinders us from serving. And it's not just bad. It's not just bad leadership and bad pastors that impact the way people serve today. It's because we look back at glory days and we pick out that one man, that one leader, that one group of leaders that was gr the greatest thing since sliced bread. We can't imagine ever, anybody ever leading us and taking us the way that he or that staff took us. And we look at the current staff and say, well, you'll do. You're okay. But you're not him. I had the privilege of serving in a church that sent seven pastors on to full-time IMB service. One of them, one of them, most of them were still in the IMB. One of them became president of the IMB. President of the International Mission Board. Had served at this little rural church in Texas. Forty years before I had been there. Man, those were glorious days. Those were great times. I wish we could do things the way he did things. And we're hindered from serving because we think what we did in the past was greater than what we might do in the future. Does your past hinder you from serving at Iron City? If it does, can I just encourage you? Push through it. Push through it. Whatever it is. Whatever it is in your past. Whatever they've done. Push through it. Because let me express something to you that these two parables do. Your service in the kingdom of heaven is more valuable than the pain that it causes you to serve. Every time. There are other things that keep us from serving. Idolatry. Augustine says that when we worship something that should be used, or we use something that should be worshipped, it's idolatry. Idolatry is when we put something in our heart above God. When we give more value, more fear, more esteem to anything other than God, that's idolatry. You want to bring that into modern English for you? It's called busyness. It's busyness. When we're so busy and overwhelmed and wrapped up in everything else that we have going on that we can't serve God. It's idolatry. 
It's failure to place God first and everything else after that. And I'm not looking at you guys when I'm talking because I'm the one who has to walk into the mirror every day, right? I have to look at my own schedule and say, I'm too busy. No, I better not say that. I can't get to, I, I better not say that. If you're too busy to serve God, find out what you can cut out of your life. Find out what you can change. Find out how your schedule can be shifted around so that you can be a faithful servant to an almighty God. Other things that hinder us from service. Anger. Bitterness. If you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. And this, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, I'm sorry. Uh, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. And he is laying out for them what it looks like to serve, what it looks like to love, what it looks like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 30, he says this. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgives you. That anger that we have for someone else in the congregation that causes us not to serve. That anger we have about the past that causes us not to serve. Paul says, let it go. Let it go. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, don't let that bitterness become a root that grows up in you. It's got to be cut out and cut off. Because Anger and bitterness and hatred and unforgiveness are going to do nothing but cause you grief from that moment forward. We're to display the ethic of the kingdom of God and experience and show to the onlooking world the value of the kingdom of God by forgiving one another. I do things daily that my family has to forgive me for. Now, you guys might not know this about me. I'll tell a little bit on myself here because I'm quite a needy individual. And when I say that, God has blessed me with a spouse who takes care of my needs. And so one of the things that my beautiful wife does for me is that every day she lays out my clothes for me. I know a grown man can go pick out his clothes in the closet, but trust me, it doesn't work. So she lays out my clothes for me. And yes, if I'm on a trip, I call her and ask her what to wear. It's okay. Or I take a picture of the outfit so I make sure I put everything together the right way. Go ahead and laugh. It's okay. I'm needy and she takes care of me. This morning, I tell you, I do something daily. This morning, I grabbed the outfit that she had laid out for me and I was going to do some reading. And so I was going to get some of the wrinkles out before I ironed it. I can't. I threw them in the dryer. 
And so one of the things that we've done is we started using sponges with water and fabric softener on them in the dryer to keep the static out. Works just like a bounce sheet, great stuff. When your clothes are wet. When your clothes are dry. What happens is that fabric softener slings all over your pants and all over your white shirt. And you can't wear them. And so you walk into the room and you wake up your lovely wife. And there's nothing to do but ask for forgiveness. <laughs> Darling, I have messed up the clothes you laid out for me. I appreciate everything you do, but can you get me out something else to wear? This is outfit number two. We all do things that hurt those around us. We all need to be forgiven. We all needed Christ to forgive us. And he graciously when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to displaying the kingdom of heaven for a lost world inside the church, forgiveness is key. We've got to learn how to forgive. There are also wrong motives for serving. I mentioned them earlier. Obligation and duty. The past is a wrong motive for serving. Well, if I don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. That's not the right reason to serve. Just let it go undone. It'll be okay. You know, I, it's my duty to go up there and to, to take care of those kids once a month. i got to go today. I sure would like to sleep in today, but i got to go take care of those kids. It's not the right reason to serve. Tradition. Well, we've always had that, and if we don't do it right now, we're ne it's, it's going to die. Let it die. We serve because we see the value of the kingdom of heaven and what it means to love one another and to serve one another as we demonstrate that value to an onlooking world because we know that they have no hope of experiencing the treasure of the kingdom of heaven unless we show it to them. Roll up your sleeves is hard work. It's not easy to leave your family, to go for a weekend, a week, or multiple weeks to a different place in a different context. It's not easy to get your family up on a Saturday morning or early one day and take them into West Anniston to feed the homeless. It's not easy to give up our time on a Sunday evening and go into the prisons to tell them about who Christ is. They're not looking for the kingdom of heaven. It's not easy to serve God. It's not easy to roll up your sleeves. It's not easy for our teachers to take time out of their jobs and lives to prepare every single week to come in and lead your groups on Sunday morning. It's not easy. It's a challenge. But ladies and gentlemen, we need you to serve. 
we need you to roll up your sleeves. We need you to forget the things of the past and move on to the things of the future. We need you to forgive and move on to what God has in store. We need you to see the value of the kingdom of God and how we can demonstrate that to a lost world and roll up your sleeves and serve him faithfully. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We know that you are a great and a mighty God. Father, we know that your kingdom is more valuable.